Our passage this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4. And as you turn there, let me just say a couple of words to kind of get us going. Um, uh, the, message, uh, the message is entitled, Pursue Godliness. Pursue Godliness. And so I know immediately the first thing you might be thinking, um, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a while, is, is so, Pastor, you're going to tell us to read our Bibles and, and pray more. Oh, yes, yes, I, I actually am. But, um, but even as I do that, I hope with an intention of reminding us of something that is far deeper than simply the doing of a task is the reason why. Um, I, I can encourage the husbands in this room to be nice to your wives or the wives in this room to treat your husbands well or vice versa, right? We could, we could exchange those things. I can encourage you to, to the doing of stuff, but the simple doing of stuff is not the same as the desire to do them in the first place. In other words, I, I could go about the task I, I, I've been happily married for. I can't do the math in my head. About 27 years, I think. I think it's 27 years. And, um, and I, could, I could imagine, you, you can imagine, that I could go home and buy Kathy flowers, my wife, buy her flowers or bring her some chocolates or do something nice for her. You know, uh, bring something to her. And then if she says, oh, thank you, and that's real nice, I could say, yeah, I'm supposed to. You're welcome, you know, because that's what I'm supposed to do, right? And so I, I say something, oh, honey, you look, you look really pretty. Today. Oh, that's kind of you, honey. No, no, I was supposed to say that. I, I wrote that down. I memorized it because that's the kind of stuff I'm supposed to say. That's what God wants me to do. There's the capacity in us to pursue the doing of stuff without a heart that is transformed and fixated on who God is and what he has accomplished for us. And I think, I think that is uh, the challenge that, that we face, especially after a year and a half of so much struggle just to have normal fellowship, right? And, um, and I think of you guys in particular, even as you guys go through transitions in leadership, um, it's going to always be a struggle for you guys to remember that the why of what we do is sometimes more important than the particular, the what we do. Because the what we do must flow out of who we are, what we believe, and where our hope lies. So when we say pursue godliness here, and we listen in on Paul the apostle to his son in the faith, Timothy, saying, Timothy, you need to pursue godliness. You need to train yourself for godliness. I think what we will hear is a call of Paul saying, don't just do what you're supposed to do. Remind yourself of why you do everything and let that feed your souls. Let that recover your joy and let that become in you a wellspring of gospel life. So, as we turn to 1 Timothy, I'm going to read from verse 6, so I get the whole, cha- uh, the whole paragraph there. And I am going to mention a little bit of verse 6, but I want the bulk of it to be in 7 and 8. And so let me read you the passage. I'll pray quickly, and then we'll dive right in. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we have sung praises to your grace to us about your majesty and how glorious you are, especially in saving us. And as we have uh, um, even prayed and lifted up Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in churches in this church, um, some going through tremendous, um, tremendous difficulty and tragedy, and others just just kind of moving on and doing the best they can. For all of us, Lord, that are here within within hearing of your word, we pray that your spirit would do a work in our souls, that we would think about what it means to pursue godliness and not for the mere sake of trying to be something in ourselves, but of us feeding our souls so that we find ourselves, regardless of circumstances, regardless of situations, we find ourselves stable, joyful, at peace, because God will always be God, a living and saving God who has rescued our souls And allowed us to draw near to him. And that this life, no matter how great or difficult, is just a shadow of the life to come. We pray that these uh, truths would embed itself in our souls. And we we might live them out in a way that would honor you. And would make our lives useful, purposeful, and joyful in service to our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's do just a, a quick definition of godliness before we jump in, because, because I think this is at the heart of what we're talking about. First of all, the Greek term is eusebia, and, and that's not the thing to memorize. The reason I mention that is because it is used in the New Testament about 15 times, the entire New Testament. Ten of those times appears in the pastoral epistles for 2 Timothy and Titus. So, so ten of the 15, like two-thirds occur in the pastoral epistles. Of those 10 in the pastoral epistles, eight of these occurrences are in 1 Timothy. Think about this. The book of 1 Timothy, the letter that is written by Paul to his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, to an older apostle, to a young pastor, the pastor of Ephesus, as he's writing to him, he mentions the idea of godliness eight times, more than half of all of the New Testament. It's a singularly significant theme for young men and women who are trying to live their lives out in a God-honoring way. So let me give you a simple definition of what eusebia means. The the Greek term is a combination of the prefix eu, meaning something that's good. And then the second, but sabia, it it literally means devotion or worship. So I I, like the, the very literal, right, explanation of the word would be good worshiping. Good worship. But the way we want to understand it is it describes um, a state of consecration of heart. Here's a functional definition for you. Godliness is total consecration of the heart to God. And it touches every aspect of our lives. So you need that second part because it's not just I'm consecrated to God and I'm just kind of this hermit and I'm just going to live on a, on a mountainside until the Lord takes me home or until, until you know, something else miraculous happens. No, it is, it is a total consecration of our heart to the Lord to such a degree that it begins to touch every part of my life. Talking about my dating life? Yeah. My bank account? Yes. 
how I spend my leisure? Yes, like every part of your life will be touched by this consecration of heart. That's what we mean by godliness because too often I think we use the term godly to simply to say that someone is mature or that, you know, people seem more Christian than other people, right? It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a misapplied term too often that we talk about godliness in such a way that it almost feels like if you just wait, you'll become godly at some point. You're, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, just a couple of years? Okay. Just wait, man. In about 20 years, you'll just be godly. You grow a beard, you get white hair, wear a yellow tie, preach at someone's church, right? You look like this dude, right? We don't just naturally flow into a godliness. Um, otherwise, Paul would have just said, Timothy, just do what you're doing. You'll be fine. Now, he says, go and pursue godliness. Why? Because there are so many counterfeit versions of devotion and religion and, and self-pursuing kind of religious practices. And all of them are doctrines of demons and not helpful for you. That, that's why we want to study what it means to pursue a godly life. Let me just mention a couple of things in verse 6 because that's the beginning of the paragraph. And I don't want to just gloss over it. I am kind of glossing over it, but I, I want us to capture what Paul is saying to Timothy in the context of pursuing godliness. He says in verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of, of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Paul is telling this young pastor, right, <clears throat> um, put these things before the brother. Whatever I'm about to tell you, make sure that you spread that out because all Christians need to hear that. And, and the only thing I want us to draw from that, at least this morning, is to realize that this is not just for pastors. It's not just for ministers. It's not just for people that are training for ministry or people that are leading churches. This is for everyone. Because he's saying, you want to be a good servant? Well, a good servant would take this, this stuff I'm talking about, and would disseminate that amongst all the brothers and sisters in Christ. Then you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. But look at the second part, and that part I do want to say a little bit about. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. <clears throat> now this is important because apparently Paul is already starting to suggest, and he has already said, right, um, well, he will say in 2 Timothy 2.15, that Timothy needs to be diligent to present himself approved as a workman who's not ashamed of how he handles the word of God. So the word of God matters here, and this is why this is significant. Because when he says something like words of faith and sound doctrine, he's talking about objective truth. He's talking about theological right, constructs, mental constructs, things that we affirm and that we believe. And he's saying being trained in words of faith, it's objective. It's, it's, it's actual things that we believe to be true about our faith. And the good doctrine, meaning those good teachings from the scriptures that Timothy has already followed, those things build our capacity to grow in godliness. The reason why I bring that up is what we could easily overlook in our pursuit of godliness is that it is words. It's ideas. It's doctrine. It's teaching that is at the foundation of the transformed life. We, we, never want, we never want to forget that. Because ultimately, right, you can't worship what you don't know. Or can I put it a different way? You can't love 
someone that you only have some theoretical or distant knowledge about. You need to know who God is. You need to understand what salvation means. You need to know something about why it is so rich that Christ would die for your sins. And the depth of that is what feeds us to say, okay, now that you're growing in the depth of the knowledge of, of, of the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have heard from the pulpit, from the scriptures, from your leaders, and as you're growing in your capacity to understand these things, this biblical truth becomes the foundation of living a life of good worship, of living and presenting ourselves in true godliness. Your spiritual centeredness, right? Your spiritual centeredness will come from doctrinal and scriptural knowledge. You cannot worship what you do not know. You cannot love him who you do not bother to get to know. So what this means immediately for us in the context of 1 Timothy is that it's not about the emotional, ecstatic experience. There, there are some that were already in the church that were, were, that were suggesting this, right? That it is about, you know, the harsh treatment of your own bodies. It, or it's about saying no to a whole bunch of lists of things that you're not allowed to do. Or it's about pursuing these things that are difficult. It, it's about all of these things that seem religious, but that don't fulfill anything that presents us in any meaningful way to be connected relationally with our Savior. I'll give you a couple examples in Scripture, and they're both Pauline, so Paul's the one that's been writing this stuff. Colossians 2, verse 20 to 23, Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Listen, he puts in quotes, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And this is the one, Colossians 2.23, that I want you to know. These things, right, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Did you catch that? Like, 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 let that settle in your soul for a moment, right? Like, like the saying no to stuff, being harsh and being an aesthetic, you know what an aesthetic is, right? That's like when you, when you are hitting yourself because you sin, like you're punishing yourself, you're living a severe life in order to demonstrate to your God that you are serious about serving Him. Like all of that stuff is very human-centered, is very human-experiential uh, realities. And as a result of that, he's saying it almost sounds like, the propo- propo- like, like wisdom promoting self-made religion. But it's fake. It, it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's another ver- passage, 2 Timothy 3. Right? In 2 Timothy 3, this is the last letter of Paul to Timothy, and really the last letter of Paul, period. In 2 Timothy 3, sorry, verse 1, he says, understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I looked up, looking at all the young people right now, right? <laughs> disobedient to parents. Um, lost my place. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. I mean, this is a... Woo! That is a long garbage list, right? 
of all the things that will be the wickedness of humankind in those last days. But look at verse 5 of 2 Timothy 3. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Do you understand this? There is the potential of pursuing a pietism, of external religiousism, right? Of looking godly without power. And the flip side of that is to say that Paul seems to be implying, even by making that statement, that there is a true godliness that is empowered or that comes with power. And that's the kind of godliness that we want to pursue. And that kind of nourishment comes really from a word-saturated holy imagination. Let me say that phrase again because I I want you to capture that for a second. Why why is the scripture so valuable to us? Because what we're after in terms of the pursuit of godliness is a word-saturated holy imagination. See, I'm taking imagination, right, as in that part of us that is distinguishably human. That is part of what has made us image bearers. Why God has made us the way that he has made us. And one of the things that we do that animals cannot do, right, is that we use our imagination. We think creatively. We, we, we consider things and we imagine and we create ideas, right, and we think about stuff. That is part of God, our image bearing. That's how God has created us. Animals don't do that. I love dogs. I love dogs, right? I, I can't have a dog because my wife is allergic to dogs. And so, you know, I married wrongly. No, I'm just kidding. Erase that. Erase that. That would be very incorrect to leave that in there. But um, I love dogs. And I feel like they're emotional beings. You know what I mean? If you guys have dogs, you guys know what, I'm, what I mean. You come home and they want to, you know, they, they're all happy to see you, right? You've had the worst day of your life. But that dog is loyal to say, I am so glad that master is home. So you hug each other, right? He wants to lick your face. Like you love and you feel like, and if you're upset with him, like, why did you? Why did you pee-pee in that corner of the house? That's bad. That's bad. Then he looks so sad, right? And you're like, that is wonderful. That is, there must be a soul in that dog. There's no soul in that dog, right? There was a very false, you know, um, movie once saying all dogs go to heaven. That's not true, right? They, they don't have a soul. They're not made in the image of God. And as much as it seems like we have an emotional connection, the fact is, unless you are built with a soul, a, you know, i.e. you are a human being, you do not practice an imagination. It's response. Is it is emotional? Maybe, but not emotional the way we think about it. No dog is writing poetry, Right? No dog while you're gone is saying, I have missed you so much and I want to explain to you in 10 words how I feel about you. Right? Dogs don't do that. They're just like, well, um, where's that dude? Where's that fat dude that always comes in and hugs me? Right? Like, oh, oh, here he is. You know, I'm excited again. Right? That's, we have the capacity to think, to imagine, to create. It's a beautiful thing. And we are to consecrate that to the Lord. So when I say that scripture is important, and I think that's why Paul begins with Timothy before he even speaks of the idea of godliness, that you, Timothy, have the task of presenting these things before the brothers, before the sisters in Christ, because you understand the value of being trained in the words of faith and of having good doctrine, because those things feed our holy imagination. We need a word-saturated Holy imagination, and we'll talk about why and what further that means. But uh, all I'm trying to get across with that is simply that when your mind is trained to think about God, 
and to think about who God is and what he has accomplished for you. When the gospel begins to be saturated in terms of your holy imagination, godliness is the product of that. But not just a state of reverence, of piety, of good worship, but your joy. Your fulfillment of why God has created you as a human being. Everything that, that is delightful about being a man or a woman who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that wells up in you. And it's satisfying to the point of overcoming all circumstances, all difficulties, because it's not about this life. It's about this God and about the life to come. That's what I mean by a word-saturated holy imagination. That feeds our souls. But let's get to verse 7 and 8 and talk specifically about what it means to pursue godliness. Verse 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There's two commands here in verse 7. One is have nothing to do with something, and the other is to train yourself for another thing. Have nothing to do with is, is a little stronger than I think maybe that phrase might convey in our English, right? If I say, man, have nothing to do with that stuff, you know? Broccoli? Woo! Have nothing to do with that, that mess, Right? Uh, we might, they might come off as something of a strong suggestion. I, and I think partly because we don't really use that term very much. But think of it this way. In Titus 3.10, the same word is used, and it's used this way. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. There, I think it's talking about church discipline. And it's saying reject, separate from such an individual. Have nothing to do with reject. So I think reject might be, uh, I think, an appropriate translation of this idea that you are to reject evacuate, get rid of, make distance from anything that is irreverent or silly myths. Let's define these terms. Irreverent, English, um, irreverent just means that it's without reverence, without um, a kind of a religious weight. The word in the Greek can be translated simply worldly. And so you understand the, the word really means not worldly in the sense of its, its wickedness, but more in the sense of its mundane. It, the idea, I think, is that there is a, a, a mundanity. Is that a word? Something can be so mundane, right, that it can actually be almost profane, like it is unholy. It, it's a difference between something that is so ordinary that you can just toss it away like disposable cups, right, versus like the gold-plated chalice cup that is reserved for temple service. Like it, it could be like, oh, you know, like I'm just going to light these, you know, simple candles, you know, that we use for, for, you know, birthday cakes and stuff. And then we blow them out, throw them away. Or it's the, the menorah. It's the, the candlestick holders, right, that is used in temple service. One has been consecrated, set apart for holy use and usefulness with value that is not just about the material that is used for its creation, but its intention, its purposes. It is holy reverent, consecrated. The other is so ordinary, and you can buy them at the 99-cent store. Like, it's not that big of a deal. It's easily replaceable that it becomes irreverent, mundane, plain, maybe profane. There are ideas, mythologies, right? And that's the word muthos. It's, it's the word for myths um, that are irreverent that are so base or beneath the spiritual, the holy imagination of a, of a redeemed child of Christ, that we should push those off and separate from them. 
It's talking about ideas, thoughts, doctrines that are simply too petty. There should be some things that are floating out there that we think, man, that, that is not important. That's just petty. I'm not sure that I care about that. I'm not sure that the child of God should be overly consumed by that. And that's what we mean by petty or irreverent. The second word, silly, it means that something is ridiculous. It's not to be believed. It it, it doesn't bear much weight or truthfulness to it. It's, It's a conspiracy. Or it's just awkward and weird. Here's something that's awkward and weird. Um, the word that translates silly here um, is a Greek word that, that literally means something pertaining to older women. Now, don't, don't be offended. Don't throw, don't, don't throw anything, right? Um, it's probably the origin of our idiom. This is an old, that's an old wives' tale. Right? Like I, most of you guys are younger than me, so you guys are probably thinking, um, or, or it might be more helpful to think of that as being an urban legend, Right? But it's an old wives' tale. It was an old expression that just, and again, it didn't, it, but it does come off as kind of, you know, sexist and kind of weird. So, you know, so we don't use that. The NASB, unfortunately, does. If you're looking at NASB, it will translate, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. So no offense uh, to our ladies and our sisters. You guys have great ideas. We're thankful for you. And that, that wording is awkward. And most modern translations have dropped that. Because it was a common sarcastic idiom used in philosophical arguments. So here's Plato telling you, oh, man, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you, you're talking like an old woman or something awkward like that, right? Like which, you know, again, today, kind of weird. But, but the idea is that something is so silly, so, you know, counter to truthfulness, that why would we even entertain such things? I, I'll give you an example of some, all right? Things that are petty or potentially ridiculous um, are things like, remember in elementary school, we used to have to give each other cootie shots? Remember that? This is like long before there's ever a pandemic, right? Like the, the girl touched you or something. You're like, oh, Sandy touched me, man. Give me a cootie shot. Okay. And then you, you guys remember that? Maybe just where I grew up. But cootie shots were important, right? And, and then a brother had to help you with that cootie shot. Had to do this and you put your finger inside that and then there you go. You're inoculated, right? From, from future cooties. It's a silly thing, right? It's ridiculous. It's, 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 it's not helpful and it's not real, right? Um, there's silly um, societal ones. Um, I, I'm Korean-American. In fact, I came to the States when I was three years old. And as a, as a proud, um, you know, born in South Korea, born in Busan. I don't, I'm not sure why that even matters, but in my mind for right there, it, it just seemed like that was very significant and important. But nevertheless, right, one of the interesting, silly kind of things that the Koreans have held on to for a long time, up until like, I, I think like up until like 10 years ago, um, when I was growing up, it was a thing. And that was that, <clears throat> that you could, it, it's the Korean fan death myth. Do you guys know that one? See, okay, we got some Koreans in the room because they're laughing because they, they, know, they know what I'm talking about. Like it was, it was, it was, like strongly taught to us that if you go to sleep at night with the doors and the windows closed, with the fan on, you will die. Not, not you won't get, you will die. And in fact, the, the, this myth had gotten so widespread that even as, as, you know, as recent as like 2011, like the local South Korean newspapers would write articles about, you know, man, 50-something years old, found dead in his room, and the fan was on. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. 
like if you if you if you Google you know Korean fan death, right? You will see that there have been articles, the news have been perpetuating this, and it doesn't make any sense. And 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 I, not being so Korean, right? Like I, I grew up and you know in, in college had friends who were engineer majors. I was a poli-sci major, so uh, you know science is my thing. But these engineers were telling me chemical biochemical engineers were telling me, dude, that that stuff is real. You can't you can't turn the fan on when you see. I said, dude, I've done that dozens of times in my life, and I'm still alive. Like, it's not real. Can you explain the science to me? And these friends, good Christian friends too, they would tell me, like, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if it, like, chops up the, the oxygen molecule. And I'm like, I'm not even a science reason. That makes no sense. This, this is not possible, right? But it would perpetuate. Listen, there's a silly one, one that was perpetuated over an entire society and over generations. But we have Christian versions of things like that. Right? Over entire communities and over generations. There was, uh, I have friends that have grown up um, in churches that taught that you don't wear blue jeans. It's like, oh, uh, can I wear you know, like tan jeans? No, you don't wear jeans. You know why? That's worldly. It's, it's wor- jeans are worldly, right? Like, and for you guys living in Southern California, you might think, like, what's the big deal with that? But there are groups that have perpetuated that. No mixed bathing. You know what mixed bathing is? Because that does sound bad. Like, you know, we shouldn't just all be bathing together. That's, that's weird, right? It, it means you don't, guys and girls don't swim in the same pool at the same time. See, again, you might say, well, this is, so what is, what is all this? It, it's stuff that we pile on that feels like it's promoting godliness, but it's just human religion. Listen, we do that all the time. We make up rules about what it looks like to become a mature person in Christ. And what it feels like, it feels like I'm growing because I'm doing something. And Paul is saying, Timothy, as a young pastor, one of the things you need to avoid is finding human means of religion that feels like godliness and it's not. You need to separate yourself from everything that's irreverent, everything that is petty, everything that is silly or ridiculous, all the things that are not text and verse defined things that are legalistic things that are just from tradition things that are just of the nature of conspiracy or things that are are the nature of 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 whatever right you know like because this circumstance or that circumstance whatever kind of thing listen it needs text and verse i know your church practices church discipline in a healthy way Um, we try to do that as well and one of, one of the principal um, things that guide us in that process is, is there text and verse? We don't discipline for you kind of generally having a bad attitude, right? Or, you know, I just feel like you're not that serious about the Lord. We discipline you, you know, get out of here. We don't do that. Why? Because it needs text and verse. It needs the clear definition in Scripture, or at least a clear principle drawn from that principle, that, that clear declaration in Scripture, so that it con- confines right, our practices. Have nothing to do with that stuff that pulls you back. The doing and the don't doing and the are you doing or are you not doing, did you vote for or did you not vote for, right? Like, like back off. For a second, and recognize that we, as citizens of Christ, we exist for a kingdom bigger than this kingdom, than my kingdom. We need to separate ourselves from things that are not relevant to what Scripture and God's Word dictates. That's a come verse six, because 
was helpful to us because it begins, right, with Timothy. And training for godliness begins with good doctrine and with words of faith. So that's the first command. Have nothing to do with this. And lean heavily upon this. The second part of verse 7 says, Rather, in contrast to that, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. The word for train is a word that is the word discipline, uh, that we get our word discipline from. And it's, uh, it's really the word we get, the Greek word is the word we get our word gymnastics or gymnasium from. It, it's kind of like, a, in, a, in a physical sense, it's about training and how appropriate when we think about the Olympics. Have you guys been watching the Olympics? I, I, our family loves the Olympics. Our, 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 my four kids, they've all grown up um, being swimmers, competitive swimmers. And so we watch all the swimming. And because we know something about it, like we are like, this is crazy. That guy is crazy. That young guy, Fink, right, running these like long distance ones. And he's just kind of hanging back, hanging back. And in the last 50, he just out sprints everybody. We're like, we're, we're losing our minds. You know, there's like three or four of us watching TV. Ah, I can't believe it. Here he comes. Here he comes. Right. We're screaming at the TV. We're so excited. All of these feats, all of these wonderful things that these these medalists are accomplishing. Right. They are the top human beings in the world at the accomplishment of something. Whether it's swimming the 800 or it's running the 100, you know, 100 meter race or it's, it's the 4 by 400 women's gold, which I'm so thankful for. All of that stuff, right? Whether wrestling, kayaking, canoeing, weird stuff that we don't really get, right? Handball. I'm not even sure what's up with that, right? But nevertheless, they are the best in the world at that. And they have gotten there by this word. By training. So I, I'm mentioning that because I don't want us to dial that word back. Because I think out of fear of legalism, which is understandable and an appropriate fear, out of fear of formalism, meaning that you have to do X, Y, and Z for you to be considered mature, right? Out of fear of putting standards of, of human accomplishment up here for us to say, okay, see, like you're just checking off boxes and that's not really where it's at. Right? That, you're right. That's not where it's at. But don't dial down the command. The command is to train yourself, to discipline yourself. How many years does it take an Olympic sprinter to train and prepare for a race that lasts less than 10 seconds? I can't run 100 meters in 10 seconds. That's a come, I, that's a come I'm not at the Olympics, right? But you got to be in the nines to be able to run that thing. You're training for years, maybe for decades, for a nine-second race. That's outrageous. And I think, I think the scriptures are calling us to a similar discipline, to a similar commitment, to discipline ourselves, but not, not so that we're the best in the world at anything particularly, but that we grow in godliness specifically. We already define godliness as a total consecration of the heart to God, touching every aspect of our lives. In other words, it is a heart that is so filled with a desire to honor, to worship our Savior, that it bleeds out into anything and everything that we do. So whether it's taking a job, or us pursuing education, or having lunch with friends, like everything is touched by what would honor and serve my Lord and Savior and not just, you know, 
what, what pleases me in the moment. Timothy is commanded to train himself in doctrinal truth, in the scriptures, in the, in, the, in the holy imagination of his heart and fill it with God so that there is a godly reverence and a conduct, a, a pursuit of life that demonstrates that Christ matters, that the gospel is real, that transformation has taken place. And remember we said in 2 Timothy 3, right, that there is the possibility of a form of godliness without power. Well, this is the opposite. He's saying train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Why? Because genuine godliness comes with power. It's a demonstration that God transforms us from the inside out. So that when we preach the message of the gospel to somebody, they look at our lives and they go, dude, something's definitely different about that guy. Something's definitely different about that girl. And it's because the gospel is transformative because God is real. It's not the natural state, right? It's not the, it's not the normal reality that all you do is you wait and you just grow in godliness, right? It's not, it's not you plant the seed and you water it occasionally and you check back and there you go, you bore fruit. Godliness will not come to us. The holy imagination, saturated with God's word, feeding our souls and giving us delight in this life with anticipation to the life to come, that does not just going to come to us. That has to be fought for. That has to be trained into. And you know the difference in godliness and devotion to the Lord that is that consecrated, that's that given over, to, I just want to serve and live for Christ, is the difference between I have to and I want to. And listen, in the spectrum of why our motivations and why we do what we do, when they're little kids, it's almost like, dude, you have to. Like, you have to not put your hand in the fire. That's not smart, right? Just stop doing that. And so we may start there when we are immature, but we hope that at some point we get to a point where it's, it's the, I want to. And like I said, in the experience of a husband and wife or in any love relationship, we all want to believe that someone does things for us, not because they have to, but because they want to. And that is what we're after in terms of what godliness means. It is, it is formulating the heart to desire to want to. Everything concerning God in Christ, not have to. And it comes by way of feeding our souls with God's word. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. I was teaching a class recently on, uh, on prayer. And um, I was reading uh, John O's book on prayer, which is a good one. And I know some of you guys have read that. But he quotes uh, John Stott in there. And this is John Stott, a great Anglican preacher. This is his statement on, on praying. He says, to be a Christian without prayer, that's my English accent because he's, he's English, is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Okay, so yeah, I distracted you. I apologize with my accent. But he's saying that, that being a Christian without prayer is impossible because it's kind of like being alive without breathing. So he's the one that connects prayer life with breathing. Let me take that metaphor one step further. Think of breathing as the exhaling and the inhaling. Okay? I teach my kids, and uh, we teach, you know, hopefully all the kids at our church, we give them a simple kind of construct and you guys are probably familiar with it right in terms of teaching them how to pray acts adoration confession thanksgiving supplication right and many of you guys are familiar with that maybe that's what you've been teaching all the younger people fantastic um and, and that's important because without that my kids when especially when they're younger all they would pray is the exact same prayer by rote every time 
God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. Amen. That's all they would say. To the point that we would be at their bedside and say, okay, Noah, Mike, you guys, you guys want to pray? Okay. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. Amen. And it's like, we're not eating. Like, what, what are you doing, right? And it's because you could fall into these patterns of just kind of rote memory, right? But imagine breathing, inhaling and exhaling, and I think you'll find that in the Psalms. That there is in Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, there is inhaling. There is me exclaiming in my prayer why God should be adored and praised. We're breathing that into our souls in our holy imagination. There's the exhaling of everything that is broken and weird, confession, my need, my pain, my sense of abandonment, my brokenness, my depression. It's just kind of letting that out. Then there's the inhaling again of giving thanks to God for all that he has accomplished for me in Jesus Christ and that I don't deserve. That's an inhale. That Again, that feeds the holy imagination, right? And then there's the exhaling of, Lord, these are the things that my people need. These are the things that our church needs. These are the things that this pastor's family needs. This is the things that, that, that my brother and sister in Christ need. This is our, our dependence upon you and how we are incapable of accomplishing anything without your aid. You see, when you start to see, right, our connection with God as breathing, as a exhaling of everything that's toxic, difficult, or all of our needs pouring out, and inhaling, reminding ourselves of who God is and what He has accomplished and what it means that Christ has paid the penalty of my sins on the cross for me. That's why in so many of the Psalms you go from, Lord, how long are you going to leave me hanging? How long, O Lord, and you end with, I will praise the God of my salvation and rejoice in his goodness. Psalm 13, right? Or you begin with, right, a Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73, one of my favorites. You begin with, man, I was jealous. I was envious of the wicked. They're doing well. I'm not. I almost stumbled. I could have, man, I could have stumbled my congregation because I almost fell into this trap. You know, this was hard, Lord, and I've been struggling with all this. And what changes in the middle of that psalm? Until I went into the house of the Lord and I beheld their end. Christian, the thing to underline is not I beheld their end. Yeah, those fools are going to get it. No, the thing to underline is I went to the house of the Lord. I began to inhale all of God's faithfulness, all of his promises, all that he has accomplished despite what I deserve. And I began to feed my soul. So Psalm 73 ends with, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart, they may fail. But you, all right? God is the delight and the joy and the purpose of my soul. See, you go from, man, I almost, I almost injured everyone and I almost fell into jealousy and fell from faith to, to that. How? Well, you're exhaling all that stuff that's holding us back, and you're inhaling the glory of God. You're exercising this holy imagination. That's what it means to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness, that you're spiritually breathing in the very gospel by which we are saved. The goodness of our God. We're convinced again and again how majestic he is, how undeserving I am, and how eternal life awaits me.
That's the second part, verse 8. It's the promise of godliness. Verse 8 says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That first part of verse 8 compares and contrasts. Here's bodily training has some value, and here's godliness and has value in every way. Bodily training versus godliness. What's the difference? What are we training for? He says bodily training, right? That, that's understandable. He's talking about doing push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, doing whatever, jogging a little bit, right? Eating right. Is there bodily training has some value. Paul's not saying that being physically fit or at least exercising or eating well is a bad thing. He's just saying it has some value, and the phrase is literally, it's good for a little bit. It's good for few, Right? Godliness, on the other hand, if we're training for godliness, if we're breathing in the things of the Lord and breathing out all those things that hinder us and confine us and restrict our imagination merely to this life, if we're breathing that out, exhaling that, and breathing in the majesty of God's grace in Jesus Christ for us, the benefit, he says, is for all. I know our English, our ESV says, is valuable in every way, and that's acceptable, but the idea is that it is beneficial for everything. And so that we are clear about what he's talking about, the next part of verse 8 says, because it holds promise not just for this present life, but also for the life to come. Listen, the pursuit of godliness, if we're doing it right, if it feels like exhaling and inhaling, if it feels like the, the, the setting up of our holy imagination to think deeper, more passionately, more gladly of the salvation that we have in Christ, if we're thinking about the gospel and its application to our lives more and more and we become profoundly affected by it, the benefit is for this life, yes. But it goes beyond that. It's for everything. It's for this life and the life to come. Because bodily discipline, as much as it could be of some help, it's limited in its capacities. Why? Because your physical body is limited. You know, um, I'm saying that, you know, these guys train for years and they run like, you know, nine seconds, right? Nine point something seconds in the 100 meter, right? I can't run, I can't run 10 seconds. I could probably run 12 seconds. It's not that fast, but that's pretty decent, right? And if you think about it, it's like, wait a minute, that dude that's been training for 20 years, he's only like three seconds faster than me. Like, is that a, right? Human capacities are limited. There's nobody that jumps 50 feet into the air. Right? You know, like when they do that, you know, the, the high jump when they curl their body over? That's amazing. They're clearing like seven feet. They're like, like this high. Like I could be like, like this, and they're cleaning my hand. I'm like, whoa, without, you know, springboards or anything. They're just doing it. That's amazing. But it's because of technique and training. You know what they can't do? They can't jump 30 feet in the air. We have mortal limitations, and the biggest of that mortal limitation is that we will all die. Right? Let's come all that we can invest into health, the pursuit of um, um, you know, a healthy life, etc. Are those bad? No. Paul says they have some value. But nothing compared to godliness. So how do we quantify this? Paul, I think, is trying to say, right, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's trying to say that the point of comparison is that qualitatively, you can invest in this, and that can give you a little bit of benefit in this life. But if you invest in this... If you are reading for the sake of breathing in the things of God, if you are praying for the sake of breathing in the things of God, if you are setting your mind and your heart and your desire towards the things of the Lord, what begins to affect your life 
is this desire to honor God that gives you a promise that holds your soul, that makes you bulletproof as far as, as far as spiritual things are concerned. And it doesn't mean that we will not falter, but it means that we have an anchor, a ground, a foundation of truth that will not change. We have life, real life. There's two words, there are more than two words, but two words particularly that we think of when we think of the idea of life in the New Testament. One is bios, right? the basis of our word biology. And used in that sense, it means just kind of life generally, right? Life physically, life under the sun. And then there's zoe, which is about the qualitative experience, right? The power and the abundance of what it means to live. It's always zoe in the New Testament when Scripture talks about spiritual life and in particular eternal life. It is Zoe when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life, right? When Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and might have it abundantly. I mean, everything about eternal life is not its duration, but its value. When Jesus defines eternal life, John 17, 3, this is what he says. This is eternal life. And so we should prick up our ears. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is about our connection with God that is the appetite for something greater than this simple temporal life. And it's given to us because of the majesty of God's grace in sending his son to die in our place. There's more to be said, but as usual, I've gone too long. And let me just, let me just close this off with this. The reason why I would encourage you to think about what it means to feed our souls again, to come back to the godly perspective again, is because it's, it's not just about just existing. It's about thriving. It's about living for God and transforming our lives from this is what I have to do to this is what I want to do. I'll give you this as a final illustration. Um, when we first got married, I hated doing the dishes. Right? I was a single guy for a long time. In fact, all my life until I got married. That's, that's silly. That, that's just true, right? That's just a statement of fact. Right? That's a silly myth. Right? But nevertheless, right, um, when I got married, I, I didn't like doing the dishes. You know, I was a college guy, you know, um, and lived by myself, uh, not by myself, with other, other dudes, right? And so that meant that, you know, we all avoided doing the dishes, and you know what I mean? Like, we would rather just eat with our hands instead of grabbing something and have to wash, right? Like, we're that kind of guys. And so when I got married, and to be helpful, I tried to do the dishes. I was like, man, this stinks. This is like, this is like, there's probably a portion of eternal hell that is you just have to wash dishes or something. That's, that's, that's wrong. Again, a silly myth, right? But that's, that kind of fed my soul. And you think about it, if you keep thinking on those things and that feeds your holy, your imagination, not holy, your imagination, your heart, your soul, what is it going to look like if I have to do the dishes? It's going to look like frustration and anger. And then once you have kids, and there's a lot more dishes. When you have babies in the house, there's a ton of dishes, right? And if that's all mine, and there's a stack of that, and I walk in, right, and I go, dude, the vast majority of that, 90% of that, not even my stuff. What is happening? What will flow out of my heart, out of my attitude? The have to feeds everything that is upset, that is disappointed, that is angry, etc. And I need to transform that to the want to. And I would remind myself, like, what's the big deal? This is petty. I am fixated on, right? on that which is petty and irreverent. 
irrelevant, not important. It's just dishes. Yes, it might take me like 20 minutes, but it's just dishes. And so you begin to do it. You train yourself to do it. You, you do it without complaining. You catch yourself when you're complaining. You, you seek forgiveness if you complain out loud. You talk to the Lord about why this is such a terrible thing, and you can't believe that this is part of marriage, right? And you exhale all that stuff, and you inhale everything that is good about God's grace towards you and his love towards you, his undeserving grace towards you in Jesus Christ and saving an idiot and a sinner like yourself. And then what begins to happen over time is you don't mind. And you move from, I don't want to, but I have to, to it's not that bad, to it's not that big deal. And I do the dishes all the time. It doesn't bother me. It's okay, right? Do I love it? No, I don't love it. But I, so it's, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, there's dishes, man. How come you guys don't do the dishes? You should do it. And I'll just do the dishes. I'm not like, why don't you do the dishes, fool? Get over here and do the dishes because I don't want to do your dishes. Right? I, just, I just say, okay, I do the dishes. It's a small thing, but my point is in larger things, that's how you feed your soul to become the kind of person that finds delight in the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ and wants to serve our God in every part of our lives and not just settles, right? Or this is better religion than most. I'm just trying to look better. I'm just trying to feel better. I'm just trying to feed my kingdom. It's about living for a greater kingdom and finding joy and the pursuit of godliness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time and for these blessed saints here at First Baptist. We pray that you continue to encourage them and to give them, Lord, just a, um, a taste of all your grace. Lord, may it be a constant reminder to them that, that, they, that every Christian in this room, they exist because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not deserve anything good, but you have granted it to them. And for any that visit here, that hear this message of Christ, they keep hearing about how we can be transformed and how the message of the gospel can be transformed. Lord, would you work in their souls that they might seek a resolution to the reality that they are enslaved and trapped in sin. And may the gospel be what is the value and the energy and the encouragement for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray.